people love drag queens. They they become well, it's like hysterical. Uh, it's 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 a complicated experience for me because once I started appearing as Lola online on YouTube, people wanted me to dress up all the time, and I started to get the sense that they like Lola von Miramar more than they like Larry Lafontaine, and that's a very complicated experience to feel. But the truth is that drag allows you to interact with people in a different way. Welcome to Stories from the Top, a production of A2SF. Lawrence LaFontaine Stokes is a professor of Spanish-American literature and women's and gender studies at the University of Michigan, whose main interests are queer, LGBT, Hispanic, Caribbean studies, U.S. Latinx, American literary, cultural, and performance studies. In his first book, Queer Ricans, Cultures and Sexualities in the Diaspora, Larry analyzed portrayals of migration, sexual diversity, and gender nonconformity in Puerto Rican cultural productions. His most recent book, Translocas, The Politics of Puerto Rican Drag and Trans Performance, was published in 2021. In this episode, Larry talks about his upbringing in Puerto Rico, his journey through higher education, both as a student and as a professor, and his own drag persona, Lola Von Miramar, who lectures and educates about queer Puerto Rican and Latinx culture in the United States. And now, Larry LaFontaine Stokes. I grew up in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and I went to a Catholic school that had a very strong musical theater program. It had been famous. My older cousins had been in plays in the 1960s and 70s. And um, I, I grew up in a, in a family that appreciated the arts. Um, I, I, I think I was, I was fascinated uh, by theater. And as a child, I think we, we got to go to some plays and concerts, perhaps not so much. But I know that uh, by the time I got to high school, uh, I, I knew that I was interested in performing arts for two reasons. One, just because the arts appealed to me. And two, because I was a really bad public public speaker. And when I ran for student government in seventh grade and had to get in front of an audience, I was terrorized. And I, I realized I needed to do something about it because I knew I wanted to be able to speak in front of people comfortably and that I didn't quite know how to do that. As a child, I always thought I would go to the University of Puerto Rico in Rio Piedras, but at the same time as a, well, now I would consider myself gay, but as a person who was negotiating a very complex identities in a somewhat socially conservative environment, like leaving Puerto Rico uh, was also very appealing. And, and my family, uh, my father um, was from the United States and my mother grew up in the United States and they, they wanted me to study in the United States. And Harvard sent me a postcard when I was a sophomore in high school. I got really excited and that's how I ended up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was a, a very jarring experience because I had never lived away from my family. I had never lived in a place with winter and I had certainly never lived in a place that didn't have many Puerto Ricans. 
As a young college student at Harvard University, it was really crucial for me to identify the other Puerto Rican students there and also to try to make a connection with the Puerto Rican community in Boston and Cambridge, um, in, in part just because, well, I was hungry. I, I wanted to eat Puerto Rican food and I was living in this very strange world. Um, it was very exciting, but it was very difficult. And in fact, that is why I left. I left after two years and I went to Brazil for a year and a half. I did study abroad and took time off at the University of Sao Paulo. Um, Sao Paulo is the largest city in South America. And in many ways, it's very similar to New York in terms of its cultural offering. So I appreciated being outside of Puerto Rico in the United States, but traveling and go and studying in Latin America was also something that was really crucial for me as a college student. I grew up in a bilingual household in Puerto Rico, speaking English and Spanish at home. And I went to a bilingual or more accurately dual language school. So I had 12 years of English and 12 years of Spanish, but there was still a huge gaping hole in my conception of Latin America. And that was Brazil because Brazilians speak Portuguese, a Brazilian literature and culture are typically not taught in Latin American studies or Latin American literature classes. And, and Brazil has a vibrant queer culture and a very long tradition of carnival, of gayness, of activism. As a sophomore in college, I read a book by João Silvério Trevisan called Perverts in Paradise. I was studying Portuguese uh, at the time, and I thought, I really need to get out of the United States, and Brazil sounds like a really good place. And I think it has marked me um, to this day, that experience of having arrived in Brazil, thinking that I spoke Portuguese, but not really, because nobody could understand me, and I could couldn't understand anyone and I had a headache for a month. But eventually seeing that transition, like how your brain starts to change. And, and I do think it, it is crucial. I consider myself a Latin Americanist as much as a Caribbeanist, as much as a person interested in BIPOC, uh, Latinx and queer of color and trans of color culture in the United States. So I feel that traveling as a college student was really crucial to who I I am. And it also in Sao Paulo, in Brazil, um, people are obsessed with cinema. They are obsessed with contemporary dance. The exchange rate was very favorable. So as a college student, I was able to see world-class performances by Brazilian groups and by traveling international groups. Uh, the Brazilian theater scene in Sao Paulo is very experimental, very developed. So I saw lots of Bertolt Brecht. I saw lots of Brazilian playwrights. It was a truly amazing experience. My senior year in college, I was very excited. I was taking graduate level work um, at Harvard and I was very excited to continue expanding my knowledge of gay and lesbian Latin American literature. That, that is what motivated me and that is what I thought I wanted to keep on doing. So I applied to grad school and I ended up going to Columbia University in New York City. And my first year of grad school, you could say my brain exploded. 
I thought that I didn't know some things and it turned out there was a lot more that I didn't know. But the other fascinating thing was not only the transformative experience of grad school, which is really to expose you to all sorts of fields, for example, to colonial Latin American literature. I did not know that was a field that I didn't know or Brazilian theater for that matter. But the other advantage was that being in New York City as a student uh, was incredible. Number one, because uh, New York has one of the largest concentrations of Puerto Ricans outside of Puerto Rico. It now competes with Orlando, Florida, but that is a very recent development. The second is that New York City is just a mecca of the arts. And there's a lot of of free things. There are um, low cost of opportunities for students. Uh, and as a student, you learn all the tricks, like how to get uh, inexpensive tickets. I had grown up reading The New Yorker in Puerto Rico, so I knew all about BAM's Next Wave Festival, but I had never dreamed that I would be going to Brooklyn, to the Brooklyn Academy of Arts. So all of a sudden, my first year, 1991, going to see Guillermo Gomez Pena and Coco Fusco performing at BAM, well, it just seemed incredible. So that I really appreciate having had the opportunity to live in New York City for seven years, to study at Columbia University. And, and that is where I did the research that led to my first book, Queer Ricans, on Puerto Rican gay and lesbian diaspora and cultural production, or in, in other words, Puerto Rican gay and lesbian artists who left Puerto Rico or who grew up in the United States um, and how queerness and LGBT issues uh, appear in their work. I have loved drag performance for a very, very long time. In, in my mind, drag performance and gayness were synonyms. I didn't really understand. It seemed very strange to me that you could be gay and in not in somehow be in touch with the world of drag performance. In the early 2000s, I started writing about drag performers. And in 2010, a Puerto Rican drag performer in Chicago called Fausto Fernos, who does a podcast, perhaps similar to yours, called The Feast of Fun, decided that it would be hilarious for me to dress up and to appear in a YouTube series called Cooking with drag queens. So Fausto Fernos um, dreamed up this idea with his partner, now husband, Mark Filian. And I had been appearing on their podcast, I think since 2004, possibly. And they said, Larry, get a wig, get a dress and get yourself to Chicago. So I was writing about drag, but I had I didn't really have a burning desire to do drag myself. Um, and so my first real experience, my full experience in drag was in 2010, um, recording the podcast, Cooking with Drag Queens, How to Make Tostones. Tostones are deep fried green plantains, which are very savory. But the whole conceit of the video is what happens when you have three crazy drag queens um, making tostones, um, smashing the plantains with cha-cha heels or with their shoes instead of with the traditional wooden tostonera press. So it's been really interesting, like moving from being a performer. I am 
Emma Slightly Unusual Drag Queen, Lola Von Miramar. Um, well, she's a society lady with a PhD who loves poetry and cooking. At first, she never did lip sync because that was just not her thing. She really specialized. Um, she's a bilingual uh, drag queen. Uh, habla mucho en español. She reads poetry, for example, by famous Puerto Rican poets like Julia de Burgos. She loves to talk about food. That was her thing. Eventually, some of my colleagues at the University of Michigan, such as Claire Croft um, and some of her students, convinced me that that Lola should really pick up some choreography, that there's nothing wrong with lip syncing. And I have greatly enjoyed transitioning. I don't perform all the time. Uh, I have a beard right now. Lola Von Miramar never appears with a beard. I recently had to shave um, to give a, for Lola to give an academic talk. So that's quite curious. Lola is a drag queen that gives a professorial lectures across the country. Lola is a very special drag queen. Lola Von Miramar is not simply out to entertain, but she also has a goal to educate and to create community. So what does that mean? That means that Lola Von Miramar acknowledges the linguistic diversity of her audience. Lola acknowledges the ethnic and racial background of people in the audience. Lola tries to educate people about Puerto Rico, Puerto Ricanness, colonialism, U.S. imperialism, white supremacy. So Lola does things that people typically don't associate necessarily with a drag queen, but that they do associate with a college professor. Interestingly, I never or so far don't dress up as Lola to go teach my classes at the University of Michigan. Um, for one reason, because it takes me three to four hours to get dressed. It's quite complex. Drag queen makeup is theatrical makeup. There was a lot of learning involved, not only learning, but expense. It is expensive to look good as a drag queen, which is not to say that you cannot do it with very limited resources. When I first started, the dollar store was my favorite place. Thrift stores were a never-ending source of costume or, or dresses. But at a certain moment, there's only so much that you can do with dollar store makeup. And it really requires or you can benefit from, from an investment. So I do not teach in the classroom um, in drag, but I have uh, participated in events such as the Latinx Culture Show at the University of Michigan as the MC, And Lola has given talks, for example, at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and in other colleges at Wesleyan University, for example. And it's always interesting. I think it, it, it mixes things up. I'm really interested in the long history of drag performance in Puerto Rico, which can be traced to folkloric celebrations, some of them, many of them religious, which are ingrained in the culture in which there is ritual drag or transvestite, transvestism uh, and performance. But I am, I'm also interested in how contemporary artists have used drag for many different things. And so for 
example, in, in my book, Trans Locas, I analyze Hollywood Lawn. Hollywood Lawn was a leading performer. Um, at the time in the 1970s, she was perceived as a drag queen. Um, she was part of Andy Warhol's factory and of that circuit. She appeared in several films directed by Paul Morrissey, um, such as Trash and as a well, she was homeless. Um, she was poor. She ran away from home, as Lou Reed documented in his song, Walk on the Wild, Wild Side. She worked in prostitution. She became part of a high glamour world at the same time that she was negotiating the racism of that high class society and of Andy Warhol's artistic circuit. And in the improvised film Trash, she really negotiates. She negotiates welfare. She negotiates stigma. She negotiates her experience. So for me, that is really fascinating, like identifying the transgressive nature, not only of, a, of an activist such as the Puerto Rican Venezuelan Silvia Rivera, who was at the Stonewall Revolt in 1969, but also of a performer, a transgender performer such as Hollywood Lawn in 1970 in Andy Warhol's film Trash. But from there, I kind of jump. Um, I fast forward to the 2000s, and there's a whole slew of contemporary Puerto Rican artists such as Freddy Mercado, Jorge Merced, Javier Cardona, and also some women um, such as Erica Lopez, who use drag or theatrical exaggerated portrayals of gender as a tool to engage different issues. So in the case of Jorge Merced from the Pregones Theater in the Bronx, um, he uh, spearheaded the adaptation of a short story by the leading gay author Manuel Ramos Otero, and that became their play The Bolero Was My Downfall. So The Bolero Was My Downfall became a space in the Bronx for Spanish-speaking Puerto Ricans and other Latinx audiences or anybody who spoke Spanish or anybody who wanted to go to see a performer lip-syncing, performing, and telling stories in a very intimate environment. In other cases, people like Javier Cardona, he has an educational theater background. He has a community theater background. So in, in his one-man show, You Don't Look Like, he talks talks about racism in the Puerto Rican media industry. He talks about coming to the United States as an Afro-Puerto Rican gay man and being told, you don't look like, and the violence of having people question and challenge your identity, not believe who you say you are. And part of that is done through drag. So there are images integrating Javier Cardona dressed as a maid, dressed as a santera or santeria priestess or practitioner. So I'm really interested in how drag, um, like people like Nina Flowers, can appear on RuPaul's Drag Race. So that is a kind of drag performance that people are more familiar with. But there's also the drag intervention that can occur in a museum or in a gallery or on the street. For example, when Freddy Mercado dresses up as a Catholic virgin or as a monster and literally freaks people out. There is the drag that occurs in a small theater in the Bronx with Pregones Theater with Jorge Merced. There is the 
the drag of people like Javier Cardona, like doing blackface as a black man in a small theater at the University of Puerto Rico in Rio Piedras. And of course, there are transgender women who have been part of drag shows. So I speak a lot about Lady Kateria, a transgender actor, a performer who made her career in burlesque and lip sync at Escuelita Nightclub in New York City, and the contemporary transgender performer, Barbara Herr, who is absolutely incredible. And um, um, I focus on her one woman show, Transmission, in which she talks about what it meant for her as a 65-year-old woman to transition, uh, to get ready to transition, to be nervous that Donald Trump was going to ban the funding for transgender people to have gender correction surgeries. So I'm really interested in drag and trans performance political performance, artistic performance from the 1960s all the way to the 2000, 2010s. Culture is essential to the human experience. Every individual, every community has a culture. And in my case, my goal has been to document, understand, analyze, and popularize queer Puerto Rican culture, uh, queer Latinx culture, culture of people of color in the United States, because um, culture tells us a lot about society. Culture can entertain us, but, but it also comments on social issues, on politics, on realities, on our identities, on our emotions, affects, traumas. So, so I, I approach culture from a cultural studies perspective. That means reading culture through the lens of social theory, history, analysis, sociology, ethnography. So the same way that a sociologist or an anthropologist can study a phenomenon, I, I look at novels, at films, at plays, at cartoons, at performances. The, the question that has always led my, my research has been about the particularity and the challenges of queer Puerto Ricans or queer Latinx persons in the United States and in the Caribbean. So that was the focus of my first book, Queer Ricans, that came out in 2009. And more recently, in 2021, or this year, um, I just published a book called Translocas, The Politics of Puerto Rican Drag and Trans Performance. So this book is more of a performance studies book, but I, I'm just, I, I love going to shows. I love drag queens. I love transgender performers. I love seeing them on television, on RuPaul's Drag Race, but I also love seeing them on the dance floor or in the cabaret, of course, before COVID-19, before we had to stop doing that. So it really excites me. Um, I write about it. I teach it in my classes and I enjoy it. Thank you for listening to this production of A2SF. We would like to thank our team, including our interns, associate producer Bonnie Bremer, and the sound engineer, Evan Starr. Our marketing and communications manager, Natalie Robbins. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Nadim Azam and mixed and mastered by Elliot Saba. Me, I'm programming and operations manager, James Carter. If you like what you heard, subscribe, rate us, and share the joy with someone you love. 
The Ann Arbor Summer Festival, A2SF, is supported by a generous community of individuals, foundations, and local businesses. Please consider donating to the festival at a2sf.org slash donate.